All of the newest episodes of Note to Self are now available on the Luminary Podcast app. It's free to download, and you can also listen to other podcasts from WNYC Studios like Radiolab, Two Dope Queens, Snap Judgment, Here's the Thing with Alec Baldwin, and others. Luminary Premium is the only place where you can enjoy the entire new season of Note to Self, plus new original podcasts you won't find anywhere else from Trevor Noah, Roxanne Gay, Guy Raz, Lena Dunham, and many more. And you can enjoy them ad-free. Start your free trial by going to luminary.link slash note to self or download the Luminary app for free. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hello, my name is Bria. I live in Los Angeles and I use a period tracker app called Clue. Bria, talk about data getting personal. And with Clue, if you want to, you can let them use your anonymous data in the reproductive health studies that they do. And even though I'm giving them access to this extremely private information, I'm actually really happy to share it because I get to contribute to their menstrual and reproductive health research. Listeners, there's a question for you. Would you give up your most intimate information if you knew it would be used for the greater good? Well, 75% of you said yes in our survey about privacy. But how do you know that the people you give that data to really will use it for the greater good? How do you know they won't just sell it to other people or use it to sell you more stuff or worse? It's Note to Self, the tech show about being human. I'm Anoush Zamarodi. This week, we're exploring how our personal information, yours, mine, millions of others, can be put to work to illuminate injustice and even reduce suffering around the world. Yeah, it's a big claim. We visit two of the world's top scientists at MIT who are inventing new ways to use data to improve people's lives. And we discover what, or shall I say who, could spoil all this potential for good. Yeah. Hello. Hi there. How are you? Hi, Sandy. It's Manoush. Good. I see. How are you? Sandy Pentland has been called one of the world's most powerful data scientists. He co-founded MIT's Media Lab. He advises the UN. And his goal is to upend how entire societies function, especially places where problems are literally life and death. You have to remember that it's still possible to have a genocide occur without the rest of the world knowing about it. It's still possible to have infectious diseases spread dramatically before people are aware of it. So those are the things that you can do something about if you have the data. It might be possible to get to a world where you never have to say, I didn't know. Think about that. In the early 70s, when Sandy was an undergrad at the University of Michigan, he also worked part-time for NASA, as you do. He got this weird assignment as part of an environmental monitoring project. Sandy, figure out how to count Canadian beavers from space. Yes, tiny beavers. Only a few years ago, this shallow, pebbly stream flowed straight down the valley. Then a family of beavers moved in and built a dam. Satellites couldn't see that closely then. Sandy came up with an idea to measure something else, the ponds that the beavers built, 
which the satellites could spot. And thus began Sandy Pentland's obsession with measuring behavior, how animals and people do things to change their surroundings. But now, decades later, we can measure so much more. Uber, for example, just announced it would share the information it collects from billions of rides with city planners. Add that to other data, most of it already publicly available, and you can see a city in a way that has never been seen before. You could see the sidewalks that people use the most, combined with what time of day and where people tweet the most. What about the areas where people make the most phone calls? And those stores that just don't seem to be able to stay in business, what do they all have in common? All of this data gets combined and visualized into what could be the future of social urban planning. This is happening in Sandy's lab just down the hall from his office. This is the laboratory next door. It's called Changing Places. It's this big open area with miniatures of various cities on display. Um, can I just say, we're, <laughs> we are in my son's fantasy world right now. This is a large black table, and there is a city built entirely out of very small white Lego bricks. One of those models is of Cambridge, Massachusetts, and the MIT campus itself. We've got photos of them on our website and in our newsletter this week, by the way. That's us. Oh, okay. There we are. We're right here. <laughs> okay. And this is the surrounding area. So I should just say, so projected on top of this white Lego world, whoa, are different colors. Right now, it just projected yellow colors, red colors. Is this a heat map that it just projected on there? It'll show you things like which things get sun, which things don't get sun. It'll show you traffic patterns. It'll show you investment. So, investment. Yeah, so this is a huge area for startup companies. You can look at foot traffic. You can look at Twitter traffic. You can look at all the things you'd want to think about. Those electronic sounds you're hearing are synced to various sets of data as they get projected on and off over the model cities. In a best-case scenario, here's how this light-up Lego datascape gets used. So you get 12 people around the table, people from the... Uh, Assisted housing advocacy group, people from the city government, people from the state government or the federal government, people from the universities, people from the startup community, all looking at it physically together. So we can ask questions interactively using the data and come to a, uh, an agreement about what looks good. Thousands of exhausted refugees arriving in Germany overnight. After Sandy gave me an example of a mayor in Germany who is using the technology to figure out where to house 3,000 Syrian refugees that his town has agreed to take in. He wants these refugees to be integrated, not segregated. And when Sandy told me the story, that was a real aha moment for me. Because ultimately, all this data is just about really informing the humans who make the decisions. But what happens when a representative of the refugees doesn't get invited to the table, only the immigration authorities? Or what if the mayor decides to agree with whoever gave him the most money in his last campaign? Have you ever had somebody who, I don't know, they looked at it and it kind of creeped you out how they saw it, that they were like, oh, look, that's where all the poor people live. Okay, we're going to make sure we get more policing over there. Sure, but that's why you want to have all the different stakeholders around the table. So for instance, that sort of attitude 
wouldn't happen if you had somebody from the housing project representing the people there. Wouldn't happen if you had the mayor's office there because they have to get elected. This is the argument that many use in the tech community, that the data is neutral. It's the people using it who have an agenda. What I'm talking about is trying to find places where data can be used for good in a safe manner. There are dangers, as you just pointed out. The bad part, of course, is that you can get targeted. You can imagine with a bad government, things could be used in really negative ways. As I was just saying to my son, yes, Google Maps is wonderful, but in Syria, they would use it to launch bombs at you, right? So there's no simple answer to this. The thing we need to do is, you know, change the regulation. That's happening. Change people's awareness. That's happening. Come up with solutions that use non-threatening data, like aggregate data, educate people about what data means, what you can do with it, what shouldn't be done with it. This is the real challenge, listeners, making sure that the humans evolve along with the technology. We're moving from the Wild West to the place where it ought to be better. And so that's where we are. It's not clear. We're working on it. I think that there needs to be a deal between private companies, governments, and the citizens, a win-win-win, where citizens get to know more. Uh, The government needs to be a little more accountable, right? And companies need to be a little more transparent. Sandy Pentland, thanks for inviting me to your lab. Sure, sure. My pleasure. When we come back, turning feelings into data points and machines built to have a high emotional intelligence and what that would even do to society. Stick with us. We're back. This is Note to Self. I'm Anoush Zamarodi, and during my visit to MIT, I saw robots worth tens of millions of dollars dressed as Santa Claus. I saw the inventor of the web wandering past the cafeteria and a garden of digital flowers. MIT is a pretty special place. Some would say an ivory tower that feels far away from the rest of our troubled world. But that's not to say that those troubles aren't on researchers' minds. Sandy Pentland wants to use big data to solve big humanity-level problems. Rosalind Picard wants to use it to solve the problems that come up when we're one-on-one with each other. I'm professor of media arts and sciences at the MIT Media Lab and director of our affective computing research here. We are sitting in my office in the Media Lab on the third floor. Roz is building machines that understand what humans are feeling to help the people for whom emotion just does not compute. Many, many engineers and computer scientists are not good at reading people's facial expressions. You're smiling right now, and people might think, oh, just look if the person's smiling. That means they're happy. Well, we found that 90% of frustrated computer users smiled, the true smile of happiness, when they were frustrated. Which means telling people to just look for a smile doesn't cut it. One young man I talked to was on his 20th job, and he's like half my age. And 
one of the things he had trouble with was seeing if his boss was pleased or displeased. If you can't see on the face of somebody if you've pleased or displeased them, that's a phenomenal handicap. So in 2011, a year before Google introduced Google Glass, Roz and her team devised an elegant glasses-mounted solution. This is a tiny camera that in milliseconds records and analyzes facial expressions, how the person moves their head, and reports back what those movements mean. And so what we did is we had the camera read, do you look interested? Do you look disinterested? Do you look agreeing? Do you look disagreeing? You know, positive, negative. Do you look confused? In which case, maybe I should slow down and pause. We had each of those mapped to an LED in the glasses that were private for the wearer. So I would get the green light if you looked interested or agreeing. I would get the yellow light if you looked confused, kind of, hey, Roz, slow down. And I would get the red light if you looked disagreeing or you stopped looking interested in what I had to say. Roz and her team ended up spinning off their emotion-reading technology into a company called Affectiva. With investment money to keep them going, they could feed millions more facial data points into their algorithms until their software got close to 100% accuracy. And then they could be used to build mass market tools that did what Roz originally set out to do, help people who can't read emotion function better. Last I looked, there were about a half dozen products for people with autism that were doing everything from reading the expressions for them live to helping give them tools, educational tools to learn how to read them without technology. So, I mean, this is a perfect example of, yes, absolutely, used for good, no doubt about it, helping people who really struggle with understanding basic human interaction decipher it. Yes. But let's go to the other extreme, just so that we lay out what the spectrum is here, where somebody might use this technology for maybe not such altruistic reasons. Yeah. For example, when Affectiva was building this, the Arab Spring happened. It was supposed to be a new dawn as millions of Egyptians came together. One of the surprises was that Mubarak was so out of touch with the people that Mubarak thought everybody was fine with what he was doing. And even when a million people were protesting in Tahrir Square, the rationale was, oh, that's just a million people. Egypt has, you know, more than 10 times as many people out there who are perfectly happy with me. Well, suppose that everybody listening to his speeches could have somehow with total security and privacy, and this is a very important piece, shown with their facial expressions, with their sneers, with their smirks, with their lack of smiles, or with smiles if they really liked what he was saying. Imagine the power of a leader having that feedback and seeing, oh my gosh, only 1% of my population likes what I'm saying. Now, would that leader make a better decision with that information or not? And here's a nightmare scenario that the leader would find out which communities didn't like him and destroy those communities in some you know, horrible way. So this is why the technology has the power to close that communication gap, but you also have to be super careful that you can't identify who exactly it's coming from, right? It makes me wonder, you know, sitting here at MIT, what has been really striking to me as I've looked at some of these labs is like there's the academic side, the institution, 
some of these things are funded by the Defense Department. DARPA is very involved in funding. Then there's also the commercial side, advertisers who think this is fantastic. This could change the way we do business. A lot of the projects here get spun off into startups. There's a lot of stakeholders with these technologies. Where do you, as the sort of creator, inventor, how do you maneuver amongst all of this? Mm. I think it's so important that we understand what drives people and what drives them to take technology that can do amazing good and use it for evil. It's not enough to create it and try to make it so nobody can use it for harm. We do that, but we just can't succeed 100%. But that's because human nature involves this dark side as well. So what we need to do, I think, is have these kinds of conversations, uphold that which is good. You know, maybe we need to be encouraged a little bit more to be self-critical and speak out about it. So many of the technological innovations and focus have been on how do you get it sticky? How do you get people to attach to it? How do you get people to click more? It's like operant conditioning. And it hasn't been, how do I make people's lives better? That's the promise, the possibility that big data can help us learn to really see each other and our feelings, that it can create a future in which no leader, no international body can say that they didn't know a genocide was happening or that a disease was spreading. But what if the leader sees the genocide and just doesn't care or worse, is all for it? What if the emotion-reading technology gets used to punish people who frown when that leader speaks? These tools, this potential, depends on humans being good. And we are not always good. I really want to live in that future where we use all this tons of data anonymously to improve our cities and our lives, maybe even to stop climate change or cure cancer. I mean, here in New York City, the Department of Homeless Services has started mining apartment eviction filings to try and see if they can figure out who is at risk for becoming homeless and what they could do to help them before they actually do. But also in New York City, there's a big fight going on over the data collected as part of a new ID card program. Thousands of immigrants handed over their very personal information to get these ID cards. Now Mayor de Blasio wants to destroy all those records so they can't potentially be used by the Trump administration to find and deport people. There are good and there are bad uses of data, which is why we need to talk about safeguards. And it's not just the technologists who need to talk, but all of us. We need to decide what information is for sale and what we want to protect. It's almost like people are afraid to say, here's where we would cross the line. Here's where it would really be wrong. But I think we might need to start to wrestle a little bit more with where are the real boundaries. Starting next week, we'll be drawing those lines. We'll be talking about how we can set some personal and societal boundaries so we can get to that future the good one. And this brings me to a very important programming note. Your regularly scheduled note to self will not be out next Wednesday, as it usually is. 
Instead, it's coming out Monday. Yes, two days earlier than usual. And that is because we are partnering with NPR to launch our Privacy Paradox project that day. Monday, January 30th. We're going to explain what the paradox is, what you can do to protect your privacy, and all the information you need to take part in Challenge Week, which starts February 6th. If you know you're in and you just want to sign up now, please go to privacyparadox.org. And if you've already signed up, thank you. There are thousands joining you already. But please go recruit a friend, your mom, a teacher. Get them to do it with you. We know that these interactive projects can make real change happen. One last note, if you've got privacy on the brain, anything, you're thinking about the terms of service or you're getting creepy ads or whatever it is, if you have a question, please record a voice memo and email it to note to self at wnyc.org. You're going to be hearing a lot of these voice memos from your fellow listeners in the weeks to come, but please contribute your story. The Note to Self team is Jen Poyant, Kat Aaron, and Joe Plord. Many thanks to Megan Cunane for her help this week, too. Note to Self is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Anoush Zamarodi. A beaver. 